Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Origami, the Japanese art of folding paper, begins with a simple square to produce an elegant object, a soaring bird or an emerging butterfly. The artist Kevin Box takes origami to another level, transforming paper into metal sculpture through processes developed in teamwork with foundries, fabrication shops, and his studio staff. Origami in the Garden is an exhibition on view at the Atlanta Botanical Garden, through October 16th. Later this hour, sculptor Kevin Box tells us about the show he created with his wife, the artist Jennifer Box, and collaborations with world-renowned origami artists Robert J. Lang, Tejui Fu, Beth Johnson, and Michael G. LaFosse. We'll also listen back to a conversation with the Atlanta artist and activist Charmaine Minifield. She explores her ancestral roots and the ring shout, an African-American practice of resistance. In the exhibition Indigo Prayers, a creation story, at the Carlos Museum through September 11th. First, science meets cocktails with a bit of theater at the new bar by weight and measure. The owners of Joystick Game Bar have created another entertainment-focused environment. The bar officially opened on July 16th in the Collective at Coda Food Hall near Georgia Tech. Owners Johnny Martinez and Brandon Lay join me now via Zoom, along with managing partner Ian Carlson. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Hello. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Lois. Oh, the pleasure is mine. 
before we talk about by weight and measure, please tell us how you three first connected. Oh, my. Uh, yeah, Cra- Craigslist hookup, I think, is the answer. Right. Uh, so Johnny and I met many, many, many moons ago as friends. I was working at Sun in My Belly in Decatur. Shout out to one of my favorite spots. Yeah. And Johnny lived in the area, would come in pretty frequently. So we became friends. And when we, you know, became those people who were like, hey, we should totally open a bar. We did ultimately. And we did, in fact, find Ian through Craigslist. We were looking for a manager. He came to us with some good experience and uh, hunger and drive. And so we we brought him on board pretty quickly. This was back in 2014. Ian, is that right? When did you start? Yeah, 2014 uh, in May, I believe, is when I started. Yeah. So Joystick was not even two years old at that point. And then he became uh, the opening manager for George Beer Garden, a spot we opened directly across the street from Joystick. And then when the opportunity at Coda came up, we knew he was the right fit to come on board. And really, it's 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 all his brainchild, quite frankly. The, the science and, and everything that you mentioned in that intro is is coming from Ian. We're extremely proud of everything he's done. Yeah, we look at it as by weight and measure is Ian Carlson's baby. We are the godparents, if you will, and we want to see it do well. It, we could tell early on when we met Ian that, you know, he had uh, a creative streak in him that we didn't necessarily see in all the people who walked through our doors. We've had a lot of creative people there. So it was an easy decision when that opportunity came up at Coda. It was a perfect way to highlight the big, beautiful brain that is Ian Carlson. Well, Ian, I actually read that quote we just heard that this is your baby and Johnny and Brandon are the godparents. What kind of atmosphere did you have in mind in creating this new bar? I want By Weight and Measure to be a place that is uh, welcoming to all people. I really want it to be the sort of place that democratizes the art of the cocktail. There's kind of a divide in the bar scene between, you know, you have your dive bars that are very affordable, and then you have your restaurant bars that are doing lots of cool things because they have lots of money at uh, buy equipment and ingredients and all that kind of thing. And, you know, you have your, your dive bar that has your your $7 cocktail and you have your restaurant bar that has your $22 cocktail. And that it's kind of that missing middle uh, where we want to bring that high-end stuff to everyday folks, to to grad students, to, you know, people working in office buildings in Midtown, just kind of a, a nice neighborhood place for folks to come and grab a drink. And why did you think that the food hall near Georgia Tech would be an ideal location for by weight and measure? Honestly, because there's not a ton of options in that area as far as that sort of place goes. There's the stuff on Peachtree that is a little more expensive and tourist-focused, and then there's some of the stuff on Spring Street that is, you know, a little more inexpensive, college student-oriented, a few more chains, that sort of thing. And there's really, between that section between North and 10th, there's not a ton of stuff for all the folks that live in that area. Um, And there are a lot of folks that live in that area. Yeah. Johnny and Brandon, 
Uh, how have you mentored Ian in this new endeavor? I wouldn't say it's mentoring so much as getting out of the way. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but I, I, I can say that I think Ian, you know, fell in very quickly and easily into the way Brandon and I have always wanted to see Joystick and Fear Garden, how we wanted them to interact with the community. You know, we, Brandon and I come from blue collar families. Uh, you know, we are middle class uh, and the people who come to Edgewood are middle class and working class. And we've never thought that you should have to spend a lot of money for something that's quality, right? Income should not put something that you enjoy out of reach, especially something as simple as a drink or a meal. I agree. Ian, do you have a science background? I do not. Uh, I have a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Georgia, and I had a double major in theater and in anthropology. Um, and I kind of fell into the culinary world after I graduated in 2009 because I could not find a job as an archaeologist to save my life. And so <laughs> I'd always had a passion for cocktails. I fell into serving and then into bartending. And because I'd always had that interest, I started reading lots of books and just absorbing from ideas and ways of thinking from all the people that I worked with and just learning how to think intentionally about what I'm putting into a cocktail and what flavors I want to bring to the table and what kind of feeling I want to evoke when when someone's drinking it and the, the attitude that I'm trying to engender. So how does a scientific approach to mixing cocktails or creating cocktails ensure quality drinks? For me, it allows us to bring a level of consistency to the table. So just the, the precision that you get from measuring everything that you're doing allows it to be so that if you come to the bar on a Tuesday and I make you a cocktail, it's going to be the same cocktail as if you come on a Friday evening and Hanka or Steven, two of our bartenders, uh, make you the same drink. There's a lot of places that they make great cocktails, but sometimes, it, depending on the bartender, it might be better to go on certain nights than others. And just that repeatability helps us guarantee quality. And then the other side of the coin with the the scientific approach is being able to use some of the techniques that came into the culinary world over the last 30 years to infuse different flavors into things allows us to have that consistency of the ingredients every time on the, the things that we're making in-house. And in what ways do guests see the science of drinks close up at your bar? So our space, we've got, we call it the, the sushi case, but it's a large glass enclosure right at the front where all of our cocktail mixing as well as our prep happens. So anything that we're doing to make all of the ingredients for our cocktails happens out front where everybody can see. We want to put that on display so that you know, during the daytime, folks may not be getting a cocktail at lunchtime, but they definitely come up and they want to know what we're doing and what we're making. And, oh, this goes into that cocktail. Man, I really have to come back at, at five o'clock when I'm, when I'm done for the day and have one of those before I head home, mm. that sort of thing. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the creatives behind the new bar by weight and measure. Johnny Martinez, Brandon Lay, and Ian Carlson.
Would you talk about some of your cocktails, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic offerings? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So probably one of our most popular drinks right now is the Get Up, Get Out, uh, which is named after a outcast and goody mob song from the from the 90s <laughs> it's a cocktail where we have a strawberry infused gin and we're doing that gin in sort of a different way uh normally to infuse an alcohol with strawberries you'd cut the strawberries up and put them in and let it sit for a long period of time a couple weeks up to a month um, and you would slowly get this flavor but it wouldn't quite be the pure flavor of the strawberry what we're doing is we are slicing the strawberries up and dehydrating them and then we stick them in a blender with the gin itself and pulverize the strawberries. And then we treat that mixture with a pectin enzyme, which breaks down the pectin in the, in the fruit so that it doesn't make a, a jelly on us. And then we actually strain that and then run it through a uh, centrifuge to kind of pull all of the very fine particles out uh, so that we get this beautiful, clear red spirit that's our base for the cocktail. And it winds up that there's about the equivalent of a pound of strawberries in every liter of the gin that we make. And it's it's just this really incredible burst of strawberry, fresh strawberry flavor. I just wanted to make it something that was very summertime garden. So we take fresh lemon juice and mint, and we put that inside of a vacuum bag and then cook it at a low temp in an immersion circulator so that we keep the flavor of the fresh lemon, but it it gives the mint a chance to infuse its flavor into the lemon juice. And then that's our base syrup for that cocktail. So we mix those two together and uh, top with soda water and you have this really bright, refreshing summer drink. How long did it take you to develop these techniques? So a lot of the techniques that we're using uh, are not mine. They've come into the culinary world over the last 30 years from a variety of sources. But a lot of my inspiration for the stuff that we're doing comes from listening to a podcast for the almost the last, I would say, 12 years or so called Cooking Issues. It's hosted by a gentleman named Dave Arnold. Uh, he's based out of New York, and he's kind of a, a chef, a food technologist, just a, a man who's very interested in the science behind why all of the things that we do in a kitchen or behind a bar work. And so he has had a couple of bars in New York uh, that kind of feature a lot of these techniques. Uh, he's written a book called Liquid Intelligence, um, which is kind of uh, a big inspiration for the bar. And so just kind of trying to springboard off of what what he's done um, and trying to bring some of that that spirit to the Atlanta cocktail scene. Why did you want to have an equal number of non-alcoholic beverages offered? I feel like it's important to make everyone feel welcome. So in addition to there being lots of folks around the Georgia Tech area who may come from cultures where they don't imbibe alcohol or or are underage or just aren't interested, I have had several friends and acquaintances who over the early part of the pandemic realized that they may not have had the healthiest relationship with with alcoholic beverages. And so they have either stopped or cut back significantly, but I still wanted to have things to offer them that felt intentional and not not just something that's dashed off quickly as a quote unquote mocktail. I wanted to make a true, some true zero proof cocktails where they had just as much thought put behind them as we do into the alcoholic beverages. Johnny and Brandon, what are your thoughts about the non-alcoholic 
beverages and the ratio of those drinks offered? I love it, personally. I come from a restaurant kind of bar background, so cocktails have always been my focus. Um, And to see what Ian's done with the non-alcoholics, because he's right, a lot of times if somebody's like, oh, let me get a a non-alcoholic bartender, will be like, I don't know, here's some cranberry juice, and I put some fresh lime juice in it. There you go. And it's almost rude in the attitude that some bartenders will have. So to have Ian, you know, craft these drinks, these beverages, with the same intentionality as he does, you know, uh, the get up, get out is really nice and encouraging. And quite frankly, they're delicious. I think they're perfect for the environment, considering that we are right now, Coda is busiest or the collective, I apologize, is busiest, you know, during lunchtime. And we do have a lot of students who are there uh, studying or, you know, office workers who are there just need something refreshing. And it's not quite time to have a drink yet, but you can still really appreciate what he's offered. What I like about what Ian has done there is that he's not just creating a uh, an alcohol-free mojito or here's our, uh, our zero alcohol, you know, Manhattan. It's nothing like that. On a personal level, you know, I've always gotten a little upset when I see bars that have non-alcohol cocktails and then they go through and charge you the same amount as they would for alcoholic cocktails. Like, uh, but that's not the case uh, with what Ian has done. He's always made sure that things are priced appropriately. So you don't, uh, on top of being given something that quite frankly, I don't think you can get anywhere in the city of Atlanta, you're not being raked over the coals for it either, right? So you're being treated as an equal person who imbibes just without the alcohol. That is very thoughtful. How do you reach people who don't drink alcohol, but whom you want to honor in by weight and measure. You go on city lights with Lois Wrightson. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. I was actually listening with rapt attention because I do drink alcohol, but I cannot drink gin. And when you were describing the strawberry lemon mint drink, I thought, oh, yes, everything except the gin there (laughs) I would take. Now, I will say, eyeballing what you had, that tropical Manhattan did look very appealing. The bullet belts? Is that the one? Yes, yes. So that drink uh, I kind of took on as a challenge to myself. Because despite us living in Atlanta, the city of Coca-Cola, Brandon has never been a Coca-Cola fan. <gasps> so I, nor, nor am I a Pepsi fan. I want that out there, too. I'm just not really a cola person. <laughs> okay. okay. Glad you, I, for your personal safety, glad exactly. <laughs> you've established that. But so, so the challenge to myself with that one was to, to make a bitters that had a lot of the flavors of Coca-Cola. So the, the lemon, the orange, the the nutmeg, the cinnamon, uh, and I've got a good amount of star anise in mine as well. But that drink is is meant to be a rum and coke that even Brandon will enjoy. And I like <laughs> to describe it to folks as uh, this is the rum and coke after it's been to college and gotten its degree and is maybe halfway through grad school. Yes, I like that. Yeah, and it, it works, by the way. I absolutely love that one. Uh, those bitters are fantastic. Uh, What I love about 
Ian's approach to the menu is he's focusing on uh, classics or twists on classics for the most part, though there are a lot of kind of fun original ideas there, but he's working on using all of these amazing techniques that he's perfected to create the ingredients in-house. So if you get, you know, a Manhattan or a martini or um, a Jack Rose, you know, any of these classic cocktails from By Weight and Measure, you're getting something that is still so uh, handcrafted and features product that they are making there. And I think that's is just an interesting uh, way to go about it. I think Ian's whole process is fascinating and really unique. And it's it's just a different way of looking at how to make cocktails that I, I really appreciate and, and I certainly don't see anywhere in Atlanta. I think we've always wanted to have a, a spot where we, I know Brandon and I in the past have talked about it because I don't, Brandon, by the way, has an amazing palate and can put together some amazing cocktails. So, you know, I've always been surrounded by people who just know what they're doing, which is nice. Uh, and we've always talked about having, you know, a vermouth or something that made in-house, uh, but that's what Ian has done. You know, Ian's making everything from scratch without any of the pretentiousness that someone might think comes with it. And I think that's a hard needle to thread and he has just nailed it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're all talk, he's all action. So that works. (laughs) Well, I think bravos are due all around. Will you offer mixology classes at some point? Potentially, we're open to uh, pretty much anything. I don't have it on the on the docket just yet as we're trying to get our, our feet underneath us, but I'd love to uh, share the things that we're doing with more people. And Ian is a phenomenal teacher. The bartenders we have at By Weight and Measure were not bartenders somewhere else that he brought over. He found people who did not have that background and has taught them everything. And they now are also fantastic. So he has always been very good at educating people. So. So I think that's a great idea, Lois. So I think maybe uh, we'll sign you up for the first one. Okay. (laughs) This has been such a delight. Johnny Martinez, Brandon Lay, Ian Carlson, thank you for talking with me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. Johnny Martinez and Brandon Lay, owners of the new bar by weight and measure, They were joined by managing partner Ian Carlson. The bar is in the collective at Coda Food Hall near Georgia Tech. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, We'll hear about Atlanta artist Charmaine Minifield's exploration of her ancestral roots. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free. 
And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. The ring shout is an African-American practice of resistance, and the origins go back to Central and West Africa, predating enslavement. Artist and activist Charmaine Minifield explores the practice and her ancestral roots in Indigo Prayers, a creation story. The exhibition is on view at the Carlos Museum of Emory University through September 11th. And when she joined me via Zoom this past May, Charmaine Minifield explained what motivated her to visit the Gambia. I was in the Gambia right before COVID and the pandemic broke out, exploring an opportunity to set up a home for my family so that we might continue our research in West Africa of our origins. Oh, goodness. It was almost two years ago that I learned you were unable to leave Gambia for 14 months during COVID. Yes, yes. It was a life-changing experience. What research did you conduct during that time that led to more knowledge of your ancestral lineage? I have been following the line of my great-grandmother, Oralee Fuquay, because she had taught me how to shout, born in the Midwest with roots in Frankfurt and Central City, Kentucky, and had done the research through Fuquay line in Virginia at the point of entry here in the United States. That line came from Gilliam Fuquay, who was a Frenchman fleeing from religious persecution with nine in his party. One woman in that group was named Grace, and she was of African descent, probably enslaved. Fuquay from France likely was taken from the Senegambia area of West Africa. And my travels allowed for me to return back to slave port points of extraction, Gori Island in Senegal, and in the Gambia, Jufere, which was the infamous slave port that Kunta Kinte was taken from. And while there, forced unexpectedly to remain during COVID, I had a chance to search for evidence of my family just by pursuing those expressions that were evidence of our cultural identity. So dance, music, movement, medium, actually, the the materials that I used 
I painted an indigo as an ode to my ancestors who bought indigo here with them uh, during enslavement and the trade skills that came as well. I painted in crushed oyster shells, indicative of architectural accents and here in both the Southeast and the Gullah Geechee corridor and uh, on the coast of West Africa. So I followed those trade skills while I was in the Gambia, sought them out, interacted in, in celebrations and witnessed festival season in the Gambia and these beautiful totemic images and sculptures danced into the streets on New Year's Day. <laughs> Though all of that influenced the work because it showed how we would actually hold those, I call it encoded messages, coded within our identity, within our memories. You can see it as a map all the way back to the past from the present. Oh, what you describe is so moving and also attests to the importance of discovering whatever written records exist. It, it was those records in Virginia, it sounds like, that helped lead you to these roots in. I had been saying Gambia, I hear you saying the Gambia. This sounds like a proper reference, just as people used to say in the Ukraine, which we now know was Russia's word for it. Mm -hmm. Why the Gambia? The Republic of Gambia is the full name. Okay. And I say the Gambia as a shortened version of it. So mm -hmm. let's <laughs> step back. It was your great-grandmother who taught you the ring shout, correct? Yes. What exactly does a ring shout entail? Mm. I was raised Pentecostal, Lois. Ah. And uh, the ring shout has evolved in Black expressive movement culture in ways that are evidenced in the Buck Dance in New Orleans, Second Line Bands in HBCUs in the South. And in the Black church, it evolved as the shout in Pentecostal spaces. But the ring shout was a gathering and worship practice that was performed by enslaved Africans in the Southeast in particular. Of course, it migrated. But what it was, was we would gather in circle and uh, we would sing and call and response. We would move counterclockwise, the whole room of us, lifting up our collective intentions in prayer. And uh, we did this in resistance to laws that were meant to dismantle community and to dismantle identity. So we preserved our identity in these sometimes secret spaces called praise houses. A praise house was where the floor was our communal drum. And because drums had been taken, drums was a form of communication. So it was not allowed. So we created drums out of these floors and they are sacred in these communities as spaces to preserve it still in some places. So I've been able to draw from that tradition and place praise houses in spaces where African-American narratives are, are in need of being lifted up or being reclaimed. 
And the first praise house we did here in Atlanta was at Oakland Cemetery. And we hope to do more in the city. We've received the National Endowment for the Arts grant partnering with Emory University and DeKalb County to place more praise houses in our metro area. And as a part of that whole project, we are also doing this exhibition at the Michael C. Carlos Museum of me dancing the ring shout. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> and congratulations. I mean, it is no small accomplishment to receive an NEA grant like that which you did. You described the indigo pigment you used in tribute to what was available here and what enslaved people had to cultivate. And you spoke about the crushed oyster shells. What is the symbolism behind the crushed oyster shells? Well, Lois, while I was in the Gambia, it was a challenge to find materials. So the initiation is what I call it into just creating the work included collecting materials and medium. And that allowed for me also to interact with keepers of those traditions for generations. So crushed oyster shells actually lives inside of the trade skills of, of construction. And the indigo, of course, is sacred dye that's used in clothing and fabrics. And the techniques I was able to witness and I've cherished included symbols and messages. And I worked to incorporate that into the work as well. I also was able to use mahogany bark, crushed mahogany bark as the brown or the red in my skin. The images that are at the Carlos Museum are all self-portraits. And they're self-portraits that came as a result of just the prayer and meditation that we all were inside of during quarantine. But that body of work was triggered by the loss of loved ones. We were all experiencing the uprisings of, uh, in resistance to the murders of George Floyd and others that were all taking place in the streets in the U.S. While I was in the Gambia, that was the reaction that came over me. It came from an ancestral memory of movement. And to shout in the church is, in the Black church, is an act of victory. So there is an element of resistance inside of shouting. So for me, I wanted to resist all that was happening in the world, especially here in the US in the streets and against black and brown bodies. I wanted to resist the way that my ancestors did and call on that memory all the way from my beginnings to my present. And that included medium and materials and memories as I did so. And the result is eight foot size self-portraits, seven images. Eight feet. Yes. I'm six feet tall. So the images are even larger than life. And, and I did all of this, Lois, like live on social media as a way to stay connected to you all while I was stranded there. Oh, so fantastic. Stranded came to mind, but then I wondered if that was appropriate. Stranded if... in paradise. You know what I'm <laughs> so it, <laughs> it was not a bad thing. It was not a bad thing. Well, yeah, yes. I was hoping you might talk about 
how you were received by the villagers and, and the, the craftspeople, the artists, the tradespeople you encountered. Ooh, oh, my goodness. Okay, so every time I've been to Africa, I'm sure many African-Americans have the same experience, but the reception is so overwhelming. The love is, is there, the open arms and, and, you know, return home, like we've made it, you know, the return element is so, so intense and beautiful. The first night that I was there, I walked through Saracunda, my village that I stayed in, and the woman was sitting on her front stoop, custom, everywhere in African spaces all over the diaspora, front stoop. I walked up to her, she, and we, had, we started our conversation with, where are you from? I explained. She says, you know, all of us have the same grandmother. Oh. We all have the same grandmother. And man, that resonated so deeply within my work because I'm researching and following the stories of my grandmother. And for me, the prayers of my grandmother is what I hold so dear and I hold up in society, if you will, as an answer to how we can, you know, sort of replace some of these oppressive systems with a more indigenous model of, you know, well wishes of our mothers, if you will. But the reception was, was stunning, beautiful, lovely in so many ways. The woman who, Musa Kebodreme, who is the keeper of indigo in Saracunda, Gambia, in the center where the village is basically an entire marketplace. It is the central marketplace. Her compound is women-centered and women-run. And me going through the streets of Gambia, living inside of a sort of an intricate mythology that I created in my mind of maybe my family was looking for me, you know, hoping for me to come home. And I, I would seek out people who looked like me People told me I look Fulani. My physical features are Fulani. She, Musa Kebodreme, and that, that compound is run by Fulani women. So there was a, you know, a deep connection in every space. We went to Jufare, the villages, the Akalo, the, the king of the village is a woman who ah. had, yes, who had been enthroned by her father after divination from the, the priest through the stars saying that she should be crowned instead of her brothers. She was the king of Jufare and for 35 years and spoke of how everyone, all these ethnic groups had, that had migrated to that region because of the waterways had coexisted for generations and centuries. And so sitting in that ancient knowledge, drinking it up and <laughs> was just, amazing and I'm completely humbled by everyone's knowledge and love and willingness to share and receive and assist me in my own journey. Atlanta artist and activist Charmaine Minifield, Indigo Prayers, a creation story, is on view at the Carlos Museum of Emory University through September 11th. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, artist Kevin Box takes us behind the scenes of his 
Atlanta Botanical Garden Exhibition, Origami in the Garden. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Creating paper origami figures can be both fun and daunting. The creases must be flawless and the design perfectly symmetrical in order to appear realistic. Well, imagine creating an origami figure out of metal that stands 24 feet tall. Artist and sculptor Kevin Box did just that for the Atlanta Botanical Gardens exhibition, Origami in the Garden. The works are on view through October 16th. Kevin Box joins me via Zoom to discuss his sculpture. Welcome back to City Lights. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be with you today. Kevin, the last time we spoke was about your conversation piece, spelled P-E-A-C-E, the sculpture in Midtown depicting rock, paper, scissors. How does that work serve as a preview to what viewers will see at the Atlanta Botanical Garden? Well, I think the rest of the sculptures in our exhibition are are themed with origami. And for conversation piece, there's only one element of origami, and that's a traditional Japanese crane that's at the very top of the 12-foot tall sculpture. And the other components are a pair of scissors and a rock. Scissors aren't normally considered when folding traditional origami because the challenge is to make something wonderful without any cuts or tape or glue. So that piece introduces that concept as well as the decision-making that come along with making origami. Would you explain why you believe origami is a metaphor for life? Well, I studied art history when I was in university at the School of Visual Arts. And one of the things that I was introduced to in a humanities class there as well was the philosophy of tabula rasa which is known from the ideas of Aristotle, who was a Greek philosopher. And he spoke about beginning with a blank slate, so to speak. And to me, the blank slate is an archetype of the creative challenge. It it is a symbol of what we all face when making something out of nothing. So whether you're a mathematician or a writer or an entrepreneur or an artist, we all begin with a blank page and the challenge is how do we make something out of nothing? And origami starts in that humble beginning. Each piece begins with a simple blank square of paper and it's up to our creative choices to adjust, alter and determine a creative outcome. So what inspired you to create these particular origami pieces? Well, for me, you know, I spoke of the philosophy of the Greeks, and uh, we're talking about metaphors of life. It's about telling a human story. And for me to be excited and engaged in a subject matter that's going to really draw my 
attention and resources to produce something that's going to take me a year or more of dedicated time, energy, and effort. It's got to draw on something that I feel people will really resonate and respond to, whether it be a sense of peace or conflict resolution in the conversation piece that we discussed earlier, or themes of beauty and sensitive things like gratitude, ideas of appreciation and sincerity. What does it mean to be sincere? So as an artist, I'm a visual artist, and yet most of the subject matter at which I'm really addressing are invisible themes, themes that occupy our hearts and our minds on a daily basis. And I think that as a visual artist, if I can activate some of those questions or activate some of those answers, then the work is going to live on sort of in conversation moving forward of, of thought and, and ideas between people. I read that creating these metal sculptures was a very collaborative process. Please tell us more. Well, I, I think sculpture is sort of a team sport. It's not something that <laughs> you can really do by yourself. I actually started my first foundry job working at a bronze foundry and here in Atlanta at the Inferno Art Foundry just south of town. And when I began as an apprentice there, I learned of all the different steps and all the different departments that you could get a job in, basically, helping an artist to realize a museum quality bronze sculpture. So that's the first step is just the nature of actually making these things is not something I can do by myself. But then when it came to designing the work and realizing that my expertise in sculptural processes and materials was very consuming, the idea that I was gonna now take the time to become an origami master <laughs> and learn this incredible paper folding art, which has evolved tremendously in the last couple of decades, I thought, you know, my favorite artists are musicians. They work together, why not do the same? And so I reached out over a decade ago and began asking and inviting some origami artists that were of world renown, uh, if they would be interested in collaborating on some of my ideas. And I was delighted to be well-received and have had an incredible, privilege of working with some of the best origami artists in the world. And your wife is among them? My wife is an artist as well. Her background is in dance and education, and she uh, has a master's in nonprofit administration from NYU. So I have a saying that for every creative action, there's an equal and opposite administrative reaction. And so... <laughs> It takes a team in the office as well. So she helps manage the business and the finances and the organization, but she's also a very creative person and has edged her way into the studio more than once to add her flavor, so to speak, to our, our conversation in sculpture. And she's got a brand new piece at the garden that we just unveiled of a paper dress called Carried Away that's in the one of the gardens that is just spectacular. And so she, she gets to play as well. Kevin, what does the installation of these works entail? Oh my goodness. We spent three years building all this for one thing. And then we spent a number of months building crates 
and planning how the work would be transported on tractor trailers. We loaded six tractor trailers, completely full stem to stern, 53 feet long each to bring all the work to Atlanta. We flew out the weekend after we loaded all the tractors and we landed on Sunday and at 7 a.m., I think Monday morning, we were unloading these tractors, getting them in staging areas, trying to get works installed as, as, as we could. But the Atlanta Botanical Garden is a, it's a unique space that's designed for pedestrian paths, really. And they hired an incredible team from Superior Rigging and Crane Company to come out. And their hashtag, I think, is pretty funny. It's, they make the hard look possible. And they came out with a team of guys and, and girls that had installed in this garden and do work in this garden exclusively. And they were special requests and they were incredible at navigating the narrow paths with heavy equipment and large works as we maneuvered these things into place. Oh gosh, a little bit different from hanging a picture on a gallery wall. Indeed, indeed. Which is why I have a bumper sticker on the back of my truck that says, could have been a painter. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I think of it all the time. Oh boy, if I'd only been a painter, this would have been so much easier. Oh, how many origami works are on view now in the garden? Well, you know, there are hundreds of pieces and components that go into these things, but we're calling them display areas in the sense that there might be a number of sculptures that make up one display. And I have brought a number of triptychs in this exhibit, which are pieces that are composed of three different components. But I would say in total, there are 20 different sculptural displays to, to witness and to discover at the garden. Some of them, like I said, are composed of more than one thing. And one of those displays is a, a show we call Inside Out, and it's in the Garden House Gallery. And there are a number of examples of original origami paper foldings by these masters that we collaborate with, as well as the unfolded stars that origami present when you are finished folding an origami design, the majesty to me and what's so beautiful is that for one more metaphor, some of the most beautiful aspects of origami are hidden beneath the surface on the inside. And the only way to discover them is to actually deconstruct and unfold these beautiful characters and to see all the folds revealed in that square. Many of them end up looking like stars or mandalas or just these incredible quilt-like patterns. And so I love to share that aspect of the work as well. So that'll be on display. A major work in the exhibition and focal point is called Masterpiece. Again, spelled P-E-A-C-E. What's the story behind this giant tower of origami birds? Masterpiece itself is a single sculpture of a thousand cranes. And that piece is special because in Japan and in Asia in general, there's an ancient myth that if you fold a thousand cranes, you'll have a wish come true. And people do this for wishes of prosperity, good health. People do it for weddings and funerals to wish our loved ones good journey, both in life and death. And so this is such a special 
concept and story that many people have folded what's called a senbazuru in Japanese or a thousand cranes all over the world that we decided to make one sculpture that celebrated this. So we cast a thousand cranes in stainless steel and 500 of the cranes are welded together into a monument in the exhibit and they stand over a reflecting pond which reflects the other 500 cranes. And the other 500 cranes that we cast were actually sold and are still, there are a few for sale in order to spread the message around the world and people can actually own or collect a part of a masterpiece. But the largest piece is the 30 foot, it's actually I think 31 foot tall bouquet that's called Sense of Gratitude. And it's spelled S-C-E-N-T-S. As in floral. Yes. Speaking of which, the works are surrounded by a myriad of colorful flowers and plants. You mentioned the goddess, that iconic piece at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. How do other aspects of the surrounding environment complement these sculptures? Well, botanical gardens in general are a place of exhibition and collection for plant collections and species that not only are rare, but also are easy to find so that people in your community can go there and get ideas of what they might do in their yards. And Atlanta Botanical Garden has an exceptional body of staff that have a budget and a creative opportunity each year to design new displays. And when we bring in works of sculpture like this for a summer show, they get to see photos of what's gonna be there a year in advance and they get to plan their work of art around the work of art. Artist and sculptor Kevin Box, Origami in the Garden, is on view through October 16th at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. Kevin Box will give a talk with all of his artist collaborators on September 6th. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Lynn Stallings tells us about the Atlanta Workshop Players. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. 
You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.